So uh, we take one bottle of something to drink while we're doing the interview. And we take two bottles because we might not like it or I don't like it. And then... We take four bottles <laughs> and one of them will be tasty. We have bottle, bottle inflation. You got it? Can I carry something? No, no, no Okay. Uh, four bottles is okay with me. All four wines are from a different time. Oh, interesting. Um, like wine-wise, emotionally-wise, um, it's... It makes sense. Make somehow sense. And, and you see, I'm not sure if I really like them all now, you know? Right, we'll, we'll have to So we will out. see <laughs> what we need. And I just love this cellar, though. It's like just the right amount of crumbling plaster. This is, this is how these old cellars look like. Do they look different in... Like when you have an old building in the... Doesn't quite, doesn't quite in this style. Does it mean that we are drinking now? If you want, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Is that good? Inga, let's drink. <laughs> you see, it's a good thing that I need Nathan. So there we are in Kreuzberg, at the home of Billy and Inga, having just raided wines from their classic Berlin cellar. The fact that I'm here at all is the result of just the right combination of local and global forces. Local because I was looking for someone in Berlin food who made a virtue of the ambient breadbasket of this part of the world. Deep rotation of vegetables from Mecklenburg, maybe meat from Brandenburg, wines from the Rheingau. Global because it was the wonderful Jade George, publisher of the Carton magazine in Beirut, who first suggested Billy Wagner. Billy's restaurant, Nobelhart and Schmutzig, back in service after their COVID shutdown, for those of you lucky enough to be in Germany now, has a Michelin star, calls itself Germany's most political restaurant, and my goodness, they have just tremendous wines. For this episode, recorded in those halcyon days before COVID, we sat down at Billy's long kitchen table to talk about German multiculturalism on the plate about anti-fascism, about wine and life, and about how to truly support local farmers. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. All right, let me throw those headphones on you and come closer to the mic. I know you're, you're shaking, shaking the glasses vigorously and sipping and tasting and opening um, I first have to check still if what we do on a drink. So. Yeah, okay. Oh, that smells good. Really you got that, I mean, you just barely dipped your beak into that glass, but already you can tell that one's ready the, to the, go. The other one is was too fat in my mouth and didn't like to, to drink. Maybe it's the wrong time to drink, um, but it seems that the time is over a little bit um, from knowledge-wise. From my drinking history of experience, of knowing, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, that that that's cool. Okay, that's cool. we have a winner, a starter. Uh, so we have a starter, uh, and we have to bring one glass to Inga. Yes, we do. Okay. If you want to be married and stay in the alcohol <laughs> game, you gotta puff, puff, pass, man. Yes. I, I get it. All right, well, let's let's pour and toast, and then we'll we'll talk about this beautiful thing. Cheers. Cheers. Um, wow. This was um, a wine which was done in 2011, the vintage, 
And the wine was made by Sven Leiner from the winery Weingut Jürgenleiner from Ilbesheim in uh, Palatine, Pfalz. Palatine, Pfalz. So where from Berlin is that? Uh, when I always try to explain it in this way. Uh, when you take Strasbourg, you okay. go, go about 200, 220 kilometers uh, north. North from Strasbourg, France. Yeah, okay. it's pretty much close to the border to right. France. It's a wine from a vineyard, which is called Die Kalmet. Die Kalmet. Die Kalmet, okay. um, which is um, limestone as a soil. It's on around 200 meters of altitude. A, a vineyard, which was new for using it on the label. You know, in, in Germany, you have the German wine law, which was uh, put up in 1971. And there were only certain names for certain vineyards which are allowed to use. And that was not one of them because it was too small, nobody had any interest in it, and so on and so on. Before that it was used, but after this it was not used. So if you want to use this now, you have to apply for a legalization of that name on the label. So it's still true. You can't just go to some part and say, like, I'm now creating a wine region that I'm going to call Nathania. No, that's not possible. I mean, it's an amazing name. Yeah, that's... Thank you, but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but not possible. You actually cannot plant any wine somewhere as you want. Really? No, no, no. no. It's uh, So what about hobbyists and stuff? This doesn't really exist? Or? Yeah, that's obviously something different for private consumption, okay. but you, if you want to build a, vin a, a vineyard, you that's a lot of paperwork to got do. it yeah. okay so but there was always wine and and and, and this um you know they they, they used the, the grapes from there uh, but they couldn't use the name from the origin on the label 2010 it was finally came true that they were allowed to use it and um we did a wine with them small batch of like 300 bottles of something one 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 cast something like like this out of uh, Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc. And uh, the idea was to reflect everything what's planted in the vineyard and to reflect this in a, in a, in a, in a, in a wine, to reflect uh -huh. the, the origin in a certain way. You understand me? Yeah. yeah. So this is a lot of different grapes. In a lot of different grapes. It's not one grape. It's, it's, it's three, huh. four grapes, but they are all planted since many years in this vineyard and they were picked and they were used for that wine, which was... Um, a kind of specialty from the restaurant where I worked before. That's interesting. Because I tend to think when you're blending grapes that you lose character. I mean, this is my amateur uh, thing. This feels like very... I mean, this has a lot of like interest to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you... You know, you... you uh, one of the most important wine in the world, Bordeaux, is always a blend. Mm -hmm. um, blend is done back in the day. You were actually planting as many wines differently in a vineyard that you were creating a result, that you created liquid because this liquid was drunken instead of water because water was usually poisoned or was was difficult to drink because it has bacteria in it and it was a more immediate acting poison than wine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 it's um, pe people were drinking wine instead of water because right. it was more clean no and so by that time when you did that you were always creating uh, a blend of something and then in bordeaux they you know they had these different grape varieties and then one year the Merlot was better one year the cabernet franc was better 
one year the Cabernet Sauvignon was better, and so on and so on and so on. So this this blending idea is something you take the advantage of one, you take the advantage of another one, and you create a good wine. Mm. And also, if you have something, okay, the Merlot is not so great this year, but the Cabernet Sauvignon is good, and you put them together, and they give a decent result, you know. So the winemakers, Jürgen... Uh, Sven Leiner oh, Sven is, the, is, the, is the, the son of Jürgen, the founder of the Got winery. It. And what's the, uh, what's the year on this? 11. It's 2011. Yeah. Is there a Cliff Notes version of wine in Germany? I, I imagine it's like R- Roman you know, invaders bringing grapes with them from Italy. Is that, what, do, what do you know about the, the kind of earliest uh, hints of wine in Germany? Um... They were probably done at the Mosul region, something around 600 after, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Long after the Romans then. Long after the Romans, but obviously probably before as well. But this is the first records, I think. Um... German wines are not like a secret. I mean, you and I were both in Lebanon recently. They have a, a, a much harder road to communicate their wine culture, I think, to the wider world than, say, Germany does. But still, Germany is... It's a beer country. It's everybody knows it as a beer country. Did, does that ever fuck with your head a little bit? You're at the top of the game in the wine world, but you're in a beer country. Do you know who's the biggest Pinot Noir producer in the world? I do not. Germany. I should have guessed. Uh, <laughs> you know that benchmark-wise, you know France, Italy is is probably and Spain is probably. Uh, very, very important. So if you want to produce a Cabernet, you you benchmark yourself with Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Pinot is Burgundy, obviously. Sauvignon is Loire, maybe. But in Germany, it's Riesling. Mm-hmm. You want to produce a Riesling in Finger Lakes, US. You, you're going to produce it. And you should open up something from Germany to see where you're standing. Yeah. Tell me where you're from and how you got into wine as your kind of first avocation. Because you're not from Berlin. No, no, I'm I'm born in the east. Um, my parents flew before the war came down, like just two months before. They fled to the west from the to east. To the west, correct? Uh, through Hungary, the borders oh, of the borders of Hungary were open. Um, we had the possibility of uh, going there. Uh, my parents sold everything in the east. Uh, went with two suitcases to. Um, to Hungary and then to West Germany with a bus. How old were you? Seven, eight. So you remember all that shit? Um, yeah. How bit. you remember as a seven, eight, eight year old, I would say. And then my parents were also in gastronomy. They they run restaurants for their whole time. For their whole, yeah. Um, my my grandparents from my mother's side they were also run a restaurant. Restaurant or Gaststätte, like yeah. places to eat and drink, I mean, like, like let's say, 50 years ago. East or, German cooking culture would have been quite different on some level. Yes, I would say. It was more to feed people and get full. and uh, But good cooking, basic, yeah, basic, but, but good. My, my, my father was a, was a good chef. I, I really liked his food. Uh, it was not very eloquent, but it was tasty, you know, so... So when I, after school, uh, I visit 10 years of school. Um, I made Out an, there in West Germany. In West Germany. I uh, did an apprenticeship as Restaurantfachmann. That's a, the proper German name, <laughs> which is like the, the, the apprentice for becoming a waiter. 
you do this for three years. I did this for two and a half years because I shortened it up a little bit. And then I started working at a place which is still there, which is called Essigbredlein. Um, and there I met... What town is it? Uh, Nuremberg. In Nuremberg, okay. Nuremberg, correct. And a very tiny place, 20, 25 seats. Um, and it was operated and run by and Andre Köter, that's the chef owner uh, of that place. And uh, I first got in touch with wine there because of him and because of the sommelier restaurant manager, which is still working there, uh, Ivan Jakia, a Shout out Ivan Jakia, Jakia. A, a Croatian guy, came to Germany in the eighties and was working in. In, in gastronomy and got into stuck into wine and uh, there I learned the first you know I got to know wine in the first way and it probably influenced me at the most and then I was working always after this afterwards in in different places with different concepts which uh, gave me the opportunity to to learn something about uh, wine and to build up my own flavor, my own taste, my own tongue, and my own mindset. Why do I sell that wine and why do I do not sell that wine? Or, yeah. you know, like giving you an, 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 a certain style of what is important of a good wine. So teenage Billy Wagner, um, waiter in training... Yeah, meets these kind of old battle axes who are still still manning their stations in Nuremberg, uh, and they start teaching you about wine. Did you like how how quick was the love affair? Was it was it you know sort of it touched your lips and your life has changed, or uh, was it sort of this process of getting to know? Oh shit, this is something deeper here. Mm, I liked it. It's alcohol. Yes. Yes. It's uh, to one degree you get drunk. It's good, you know. You it's it's uh, relevant to the lives of teenagers. It, somehow I was like twenty, twenty one. Oh, okay. Know? All right. Um, uh, you can impress people, even older guys. The wine concept at that restaurant was very different uh, to what normally s s were served in in restaurants in in Germany was very different approach like they serve california wines they had wines from southern rhone they they, they were serving german wine already by right. then it was really awkward in 2000 2001 it was not something very often seen you Ger would have been serving italian or french wines yeah. more yeah 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 because germany was still you know um kind of shaked by the 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 Things which happened in the 70s and 80s that uh, German winemakers used stuff for the wine which was not allowed. Oh shit! So they did that in Austria too. Yeah, 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 like... yeah. They they did this in Italy as well and in France as well. And it was the time, maybe you know. Yeah. But it, it checked up the, the the history, and then you know these all these German sweet stuff, and then it was what the parents were drinking, like back in the seventies and eighties, and or not seventies and sixties. So there was this generation of people who traveled first to Italy and did their vacation there, or, or to France or Spain, and and brought back brought back the 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 the, the flavor from from that region and they drunk that wine you know yeah. it was it was common to drink a, a tuscan uh super tuscan wine it was common to drink a sauvignon from the northern part of uh, italy it was common to drink bordeaux pinot noir rhone loire right uh spanish 
you know they they could do reds they could do powerful reds and and we were serving uh cabernets from from california uh, which were big and busted and always elegant not the super Parker's Parker Parker right. Parker style, but <laughs> not super Parkery Parker. Parker Parkery Parker, yeah. but 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 still, it was powerful stuff. Big oh, sledgehammer reds. Yeah, yeah. You really taste something, and even if you are a whiskey drinker with these reds, you taste something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah. For for the non subtle palate. Yeah. Um, we've poured some more of this. God, this is really fucking good. I mean, it loses a little bit if it's in the glass. Okay. I think uh, it goes. It it's you know it's freshly poured. It's uh, gives a nice acidity, an interesting floral smell, minerally, if this is a word. Yeah. Um, it's not fruit driven, and but when it's when when this is a little bit out in the glass, and it a little bit of oxygen comes to it. It loses a little bit of that, and it turns into a little bit of something agey, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then it lacks a little bit of body and structure, maybe. It's interesting. So it's to so drink it quick. Quick, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I All would right. say so. Yeah. Listen, man, you you set out the orders I follow. You tell me to drink this wine quickly, I'll do it. So, what is the the trick then? You're saying. You know how to meet people and impress even your elders. What's the one thing that someone who is the twenty-year-old young Billy Wagner needs to know about building that skill set? I didn't want to build up my skill set. It was more which interested me. You know, I was doing this apprenticeship, and then I worked at uh, Essig Breitlein, and after a year, uh, I was actually applying already for uh, doing civil service. Um, and I did my civil service in Chicago. Uh, you did your civil service in Chicago? In Skokie, to be uh, 100% exact. And um, you This, know, is, you, this you, is a German government... By then, not anymore. Okay. It, was, it was mandatory to do military service, or if you feel not good with doing the, 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 the gun thing, you know, you, yeah. you, 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 uh, and I not feel for that, yeah. not at all. And you do... Uh, working in an elderly home, working at a museum, uh, driving out food, doing some kind of yeah. um, slightly paid uh, work, which I think is, is, is very good for young people because they get maybe empathy or maybe a different a- approach in, in life that they do something for somebody. You know what I mean? I love the system here of civil service. I had friends who but went and counted w- birds and stuff, but I've never heard of anybody going to Skokie yeah, on a German I, I, civilian yeah, service. I, you know, there, there, is a, there is a program which is called Andere Dienst im Ausland, okay. which means uh, um, a, a different service in, in, in foreign countries. And there's an organization which is called Aktion Sühnezeichen Friedensdienst. They have an English American organization as well, which is called Action Reconciliation Service for Peace, which is a thing which was created after World War II um, to do reconciliation work, what happened in, 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 in World War II, uh, or in, in, the, in the Holocaust, how you would say it in the US. Yeah. And I did this kind of reconciliation work. I thought that's uh, interesting, going to a different country, doing a work which I have never tend to do. Yeah. Um, and it gives me a different ap- approach. But first of all, it was going to a different country. And I was applying for Israel and the U.S. for a program. And my mother said, 
don't go to Israel, this is too dangerous, and maybe it was is right, whatever. And then I went to the U.S., and I was working in Skokie at that time at the HMFI, which is called Holocaust Memorial Foundation of Illinois, which is an organization which was uh, founded by Holocaust survivors in the 70s when there were these Skokie right-wing uh, marches. Through oh, yeah. the, you the, maybe remember this. Yeah, the anti-civil rights marches. and yeah. Correct. And, and, and this was founded by them that like uh, Holocaust survivors said, okay, we, we have to tell our stories. We, we, we have to go out to schools. We have to build up courage. Um, we have to do something. And these organizations started out in the late 90s, I think like 15 or 20 projects from Philadelphia to Boston to New York to huh. Pittsburgh uh, to, the, to, to Chicago. And they all brought some young Germans to like come and Different work. Different projects from okay. um, working in the gay community and uh, bringing out flyers because homosexuals were prosecuted in World War II or working in an elderly home, working in a museum like me. Um, and doing all these voluntary stuff. And I found this was very, very helpful for a lot of things. Yeah. Not only English, yeah. which also brings some kind of profit, um, but more in a way of how people look at you as a German. How can you change that perception? I think it's uh, something very uh, important. I mean, it's kind of amazing, too, because I, I think I was a docent. Um, I was younger. I was like 15 or something at the San Francisco Holocaust, Holocaust Library. Yeah. There were no Germans there. We probably didn't need it back then because I think people believed us more generally about the Holocaust. Yeah. It feels like now would be an amazing time to just flood America with bunch of Germans, young Germans even, who just come and say, oh, you know, this actually happened. <laughs> like, it's not, you know, it's not like fake news. Like this, this, because it feels like that basic truth about what happened here and the fact that gays were persecuted or, you know, the, the actual numbers is something that it unfortunately could use a little reminding, you know. It's, um, I always had the feeling that uh, everything would be, be taught Everything was black and white. Oh, mm -hmm. not black and white. It, 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 not black and white that there is only two options of opinion. I mean, like, um, everything was uh, gray, like the, the pictures. Right. Every, everything was so far away that I thought I always gave a little bit of fresh color. Yeah. Even for Holocaust survivors who were very skeptical about bringing Germans to that organization. Sure, yeah. And giving them room, you know, because what they experienced, what they suffered, yeah. it's unbelievable. It's not imaginable, not yeah. at all. So, and then for them saying, we are okay with that, we, we let this go, test, and then seeing how they meet uh, young people who are so different from their imagination people who are totally aware of what's happened and then totally aware of the actions of our grandparents and want to make good i think this gave them so much joy which is unbelievable and at the same time it, it, it gives me so much joy that you see this kind of people bringing you first a little bit of ah is yeah. that right but afterwards giving you when you when when i left people hugged me you know it's so sad that you're leaving and da 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 and we miss you and you know 
it changed 100%. And That's amazing. I should have, uh, man, I, I didn't know you were out there. I could have brought you to live with some of my Jewish family. Because, uh, I mean, you know, even just coming to Germany and having lived in Germany, they did not understand. They were like, what the fuck are you doing in Germany? I was like, no, Germans are great. Like, they know more about all of this history than any American ever would. And you should see the anti-fascists. They're really violent. Like, you know, they really believe it. It's yeah, like, yeah. They got great communists here, like whatever. But they just couldn't, they couldn't ever quite wrap their head around that new generation that's but that's heavy work man to be that young and and to get on a plane and say i'm gonna go and represent you know kind of new germany to to holocaust survivors the, the action reconciliations of sopis did a lot of uh work to prepare us the rest is you get jumped in and or you jump into something and it creates your life it creates your i think i i take a lot of profit from that now still how people see germany how what germany is about and i think i still live from that and it, give, and it gave me something you know it's interesting and one of the reasons why i'm psyched to talk to you also is because i feel like you in in the restaurant that you have in the in the way that you talk about wines the way that you're you know kind of representing it you're representing kind of a positive but also kind of pro germanity and maybe that would not be as possible. I mean, this country has some serious, like, possibly well-earned, but some serious identity issues. People feeling like, do I, can I wave a flag? Like, am mm -hmm. I, yeah. I'm cheering for the team at the World Cup, but is that bad? Like, there's a, a lot of doubt. And it's really interesting to see somebody who's like, here's a really positive vision of, like, German culture. You were making German food. Is that how you would classify Nobelhaut and Schmutzig? Um... We make food which reflects the region because we are in using ingredients um, which are growing here. Um, we always look for a certain flavor. Mm. Uh, Micha, our head chef, um, he is trying to look for ingredients and flavors which are somehow German. And then he tries to put them on a plate um, in a modern mindset, which means we use techniques from around the world. Um, we, we were serving Iran in the summer. Iran is this yogurt, fermented yogurt drink from Syria, yeah. Turkey. Mm, we, 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 we came up with an idea of doing a, a tabouleh, which is something very classic, also Arabian. But it's parsley, and parsley is one of the most important uh, herbs in Germany. Mm. Um, but the, how it's made and how you use it, it's it's very um, Turkish, yeah, Lebanese kind right. of. Right now, he's working on that uh, baklava thing, which is usually done with nuts or pistachio. And uh, we won't use pistachio because we don't have pistachio here, but uh, we are using hazelnuts, for instance. And then working with acidity, which not comes from lemon or so, but it comes from um, uh, unripe apple juice, you know? Yeah. And, 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 but at, at the end, there is so much food. It's... We don't do these classic German dishes, but we take them maybe and then look for the flavor, what it reflects, and then see how we can put them in a modern approach. And then 
we, we have these different um, influences from around the world because we travel or we, we're going to see something or somebody comes to us. We have this woman coming to the restaurant in, 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 in uh, February. She's going to come and we're going to do with her a Lama Chun. Huh. And why are we doing this? Uh, because we want to know how it's done classically. And um, we're going to see, maybe this is an influence for us as well. Yeah. We're going to do it first for staff meal and maybe something occurs out of that. Or what we, is a, yeah, what's a, what's a like a central German Lama June? Like what, what, what do you put on there? So it'd be like herbs from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would be herbs from here. Maybe there's also some meat. Maybe there's a vegetarian version of it. Um, we're going to do with her also some, some, some burek. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's this um, thin layered uh, dough, like a mifu, and then there is some cheese in it and parsley, and we could do that. You know, that's all nothing what we don't have here. The technique is from somewhere else, but we 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 do it in our way and with our knowledge of uh, preparation. Yeah. And we um, make something, and and then you know, I think that's what Germany always is about. You know, we. There are 181 million people living in Berlin, uh, in, in Germany, and uh, seven point something are Turkish rooted. Right. And many people are from somewhere else. You have in Berlin 40,000 people from France. You have like many other people from, you have a big Vietnamese community. I think there is not only German that. It has to be Lederhosen and Volksmusik and football and uh, right. and cars. German is in the center of Europe and there's so many different cultures coming here. Not only comes here now, also came in the past. Right. So um, any it, idea of like a of a of a pure or monoculture no, was always no. It was always different. We use French words in German language. We use English words in German language, which have the base or the root in England or France, you know, we because people from that people from that country coming to Germany and living here and using and bringing into these words, it's like you people using in the U.S. kindergarten, which is a a, a very German word or super German or Zeitgeist, right. uh, you know, and because it, it it was created in Germany and the culture and. And this separationly thing and with borders and that doesn't make sense for me. Right. Look at Berlin in the twenties, nineteen twenties, so about hundred years ago. It was the second biggest city, which was growing in the world. The biggest one was Los Angeles, huh. and the second biggest was Berlin. Amazing. In eighteen hundred, you have about a hundred thousand people living in Berlin, and in nineteen forty-two, at the peak you had 4.2 million people living. Get the fuck out. So imagine 140-something years. It's a boom town. You have uh, a multiplication of 42 times much. You know, yeah. you know and, and these are not all Germans. Right. You know, there are so many people from all different roots and bringing in their heritage, their culture, their eating habits, their, their recipes, and their mentality. You know, this... No? And... And that's what we try to reflect in, a, in in the restaurant, in a way. Let's uh, thank you. We're I've got to drink this now, right? These are the orders. Mm -hmm. Don't let it don't let it sit and languish. Yeah, that's a nice wine. The path from coming back from Skokie 
you did you get right back into hospitality, right yep. back into wine? Yeah. In terms of kind of sommeliers and and you kind of climbed the ladder. What what goes into then opening your own restaurant and how is that different? How is it important? Is it taking you away from just the wine uh, or is it just a natural evolution? Um, just recently, a journalist uh, wrote that it was kind of a midlife crisis. Uh, she took this interpretation out of that. I didn't. I don't think that with thirty you have a midlife crisis, only because you. <laughs> well, I hope you're not going to die at sixty, right? But yeah, I don't know. It it's not wasn't you know I was I was working all my life in in in, in restaurants for other people, and I was being very passionate about it. That's very simple i'm not doing something which i don't know i i try to do things which i know and i put my own concept in as the the concept what we are doing is the experiences from different places where i work but also which i've seen which i've visited which i liked um and i put them together in I was at a rest. I was at a, at a bar, and they played vinyl, and I thought that's cool. So we play vinyl, you know. Um, I was at a bar, and they, you had the speakeasy thing. You had to ring the bell to get in. And I like that because it gives you time for the person who opens up the door. You can be very friendly with it. They are not big groups of 10 people standing in the restaurant with all their jackets and suitcases maybe even, you know? Right. There's so much things which we put together in the restaurant which made a lot of sense for us. Little ideas that you're gathering over your correct, travels. Correct, correct, correct. And um, that's how I opened up. And Let's start with the name. Uh, what Translate noble heart and schmutzig. Noble, noble, hard, like kind of strength. Uh, or powerful. It's a real, you know, royal word to start the name of the restaurant out. Noble Hot. Yeah, you know? yeah it's... Uh, it sounds like something out of fairy tales or something. It's... it's it, it. There was a journalist, he was writing about... He was writing about polo sports. And a friend of mine, um, he... He uh, saw this article and he liked the headline of the article. And uh, we used um, the headline of this article because I like the word of combination. I always wanted to have a name which has nothing to do with uh, a restaurant. Um, yeah. But, the f- but, but at the same time, which means everything what a restaurant is about, spending a lot of money. Um, because Noble Hot is the first word, but the second word just means dirty yeah but also kinky oh yeah also filthy right also naughty so it's like it's a little kinky it's a little luxurious it's a little yeah, yeah it's, something it's like all that. what a good night out is about you know that you maybe get a little bit you know when 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 when, when we had first his name and i you know um when we have friends over at this table where we're sitting right now and they are like Imagine eight people around that table, which is quite tight. And then there's a lot of stuff. There are bottles, glasses. Maybe somebody smokes a cigarette or whatever. And then um, it's it's uh, the, 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 the table gets messy and you don't clean up at night. You can clean up next day. And 
you thought, oh, that was a cool night out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I think one of the best nights I, I might have ever had was some some cabin somewhere with a lot of people on the Baltic. And we would, uh, you know, there was like a big wood table and we woke up the next morning and it was just trashed. <laughs> and there was a knife that was stuck in the middle, <laughs> like in the heart of a pig. And it just like, it felt like, yes, that's what it was. Like, that was a really good party. It was a good party. And it was a good night out. And you should have this kind of feeling with a restaurant, with a night out where you spend with friends or with acquaintances in some kind of way, even with a business partner, if uh, if you spend a lot of money for him or her and you were drinking, drinking much and you may be celebrating a deal or you're going to celebrate in two months a deal because he's saying, oh, that's a cool guy because we did this night out and oh, he's a good guy. I, I like that, you know? And, 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 and I think that's, if you have this kind of connection to a restaurant, that you, then you come back. Um, and that's what I wanted to somehow reflect in the name. I fucking love the name. I have to say as, as someone who, you know, thinks a lot about words and stuff, it feels like it says what it's going to do to you. I'm, I'm really glad that I have that. This was there before I knew what I'm going to do. <laughs> this was this was the light and you were following. Yeah. It. So yeah. tell me tell me about what's the agricultural region that Berlin actually sits in and tell me like I don't know maybe just some of your favorite producers and and what they're doing and what's interesting about this place. Germany has a very unique special role because well Germany in general um but Berlin in its uniqueness because you have to imagine for about 35 years uh, there was a separation between Berlin the city uh, so the western part, half of the city, to um, to uh, the countryside, which is outside. So everything which was used in Berlin was flown in. Right. Because with the train coming into Berlin. Because yeah. Because they flew in. Just, just to put a point on it, West Berlin, for all you uh, Generation Z people out there, was cut off. It was belonged to West Germany, but it had no physical relationship to the immediate surroundings, which were all part of East Germany, the enemy state. Correct. And and then you had uh, a certain kind of um, business model in the Eastern part. You didn't have any ownership from land. Uh, big uh, Volkseigene Betriebe. Um, yeah, they're like the Kalhoz, like the old yeah. Soviet-style yes, giant Soviet factory style. farming. Correct. Yeah, and collectives. Correct. And on these land, people were doing agriculture. So, and when this whole thing collapsed in 1989, this was the system, how the system was was done outside. And obviously, uh, the whole economy collapsed. Everything collapsed in, in Eastern Germany. And um, on a social level on an emotional level, on a business level. So it's not so that long ago. Not that long ago. Complete so, destruction so of So 24 years later, there are these two people, Michael Schäfer and myself, Michael Sauerhatschaf. We are coming up with the idea of working vocally local. So using only ingredients from around building. Did you say vocally local? Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You know, we, we, we have uh, uh, um, uh, Paula... Our translator for you know all the English. Uh, Shout out Paula! All yeah, right. you brought the vocally local. She said, for her that makes brutal lokal is the German thing. 
Right, brutal local sounds doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite translate. It might from the Spanish or something. But yeah, yeah, but okay. but but vocally local is is that what we use in English? So 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 she, as we want to work in this way, we we started to search for people who were willing to go with us a path. So we are searching for quality, which means taste something. Okay, how we can not lower the cost? How we can raise the quality of the tomato of the everything what we buy? So we try to question or we try to question everything we get. And uh, we found people who were willing to go with us and some people who didn't understand us really well. And this is also okay. And and we were found people who were able to go with us uh, because they understood that this is interesting for them. When they do a little bit more, they get more money. And right. then the system is, you know, usually the same, the, the, the agriculture is always based on paying less right there's no reward for quality correct in your typical farm yes. setup yes and we try to achieve the pigs with super good fat and uh which are raised yeah half year longer and they're fed for a longer time and oh yeah okay if it's double the price it's okay for us because we uh, appreciate the aroma of the meat when you give better uh, food to the animal or when you uh, use certain uh, strawberries which are maybe difficult to transport but the flavor is good you know what I mean we don't need um, somebody who is distributing it through sending it through whole Germany and, and, and then selling the strawberry from Freiburg in, yeah. in, in Berlin I mean, I remember even just being on the Baltic and, and somebody had broken down. I forget how they knew this, but they were connected to the port somehow. And they're like, you know, the fish that you're eating from the Baltic has been shipped to China to be processed and then brought back correct. to correct. Germany. It's correct. insane. Correct, correct. And, and this is the whole system. And this is what yep. we are dealing with most of the time. And uh, we try to change that in a certain way. And not only we, there are many people in Berlin which... Uh, see the same problems. And is it weird to cooperate with competing no, restaurants no, on this at, stuff? No, 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 no. It, uh, it, it, it's, it's good if you have friends with because, for instance, there is this farmer, David. He uh, slaughters a pig. We are too small to take the whole pig. We, we, we are too small for that. And When he slaughters it, um, he has like, I don't know, 300 kilos of meat or 250 or whatever. And uh, we take two-thirds of it or one-third or whatever. And uh, then there's two other restaurants which we know. There is a WhatsApp group of our chef. And he puts in, oh, David Peacock is doing this uh, slaughtering thing in two weeks. Uh, it's this, this, this. Who wants to be participating Uh, we have this, 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 price approximately that, blah. So, And then um, we're going to find people who are going to take that, you know, and then the pig is used for these restaurants. Right. And David Peacock gets to have a really nice pig and he's going to be rewarded for and that. And before it's slaughtered, it's already sold. Yeah. You know, and he gets the money right away. And, you know, it's, it's and, and he gets a decent price, which he needs for living for doing this again you know what i mean yeah. and and this is with so many other people it's so much more valuable that you have 
same-minded people together, bringing it on one table and doing with them the work which needs to be done, you know? I've, and, I've seen in your TED Talk and, um, you know, like on some of your social accounts, you're giving a lot of love to, like, the white asparagus farmer, the guy yeah. who does it, like, totally yeah. correctly. Yeah. So it's, it's, like, very integrated into how you communicate about this stuff. It's like... You know, like, respect this farmer. This guy makes some fucking killer white asparagus. When we are driving out there, uh, or somebody drives out there and picks the stuff up and distributes it for us, the farmer gets a much higher price than he would sell it in his area because in Berlin people are, can pay more. They have the capability of this. And so his work is much more granted and more respected and yeah. he you know he he gets to know people who really love his asparagus and they right. love his work it's like you're getting an email and saying uh, oh we love that podcast this is really good what you're doing you're asking doing this great questions and you, oh yeah you, you know it, it, it gives you a good feeling and send it's those emails people <laughs> and, and it's the same thing with the with, with the farmer right they should who, they should be famous yeah they should be famous and and usually they are not especially not in germany because most of the time it's about being cost effective and being producing everything for a lower price and and squeezing it. But price is also part of the, I mean, it's part of the equation at, at that's why you have a great name like Nobelhaut and Schmutzi. That's why you do TED Talks and extol the virtues of asparagus farmers. All of these things is to create a market so that people understand what they're paying for and they will support this kind of food culture. Do you feel like that's growing? Are you winning that that battle? Here in Berlin, or is it in our bubble? Yes, yeah. we, we 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 win, and we we're gonna have uh, kind of a um, certain um, respect on that. But it's a small restaurant, and how how wide can the influence on the culture? We be? have eight thousand guests uh, a, a year, um, but if we if we you know at the end we're gonna show this out. You know when you follow us on on social media and you. We, we, we try to um, we try to uh, show this to our customers because um, that's what they're paying for for the emotional relationship when when you buy caviar or foie gras you know it's some kind of expensive thing but why should I pay more for a cabbage cabbage is usually super cheap you know right and well milk Milk is super, maybe milk is even better example. And milk is usually super cheap. Why should I pay for a liter of milk for euro? Something like uh, $450, yeah. I would say. You know, why should I do that? What is the, the consequences out of that? Right. What does it do to the, to the farmer? And we are willing to go that path with the farmer because we believe in that. Uh, we create a benchmark. And usually we don't have benchmark here in this region when it comes to food. There was a journalist in Germany, very popular. He said, okay, you know, Brandenburg and Mecklenburg-Vorpommern is not the Provence and Catalonia. And yeah, maybe he is right in that. But that's that, some shade. That's, that's... Yeah, but, 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 maybe, but maybe we have to, but maybe we have to work on that. We right. have to work on the topic that it becomes... This kind of thing. Well, and Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is, you know, a place that I, I care about a lot, is a really interesting, because if they don't, if they're not good at agriculture, they're not winning the culture 
they're not winning on their cities. You know, there's no university in in their capital city. Mm-hmm. People are leaving. Like mm-hmm. there's the one thing it could it could really do well is to be a breadbasket, particularly for this region. And and it's kind of um, yeah, it's frustrating to think that that they wouldn't. You know, that people just kind of would rather import their vegetables from somewhere else when you have this great growing region that is only ever going to be a really shitty, sad, forlorn agricultural reason, region or uh, an, an excellent kind of proud, clean, and beautiful agricultural reason, region. You know, there's only, there's only two, those two options. In the, in the recent years, you have... Um, people have a lot of fear and, um, and have a lack in the trust of the system. Um, and voting or putting people in place or in power which give them easy answers. Yeah. And Right. This mm. is the region where Angela Merkel is from and, you know, she's the, the chancellor, and, but uh, also they, they vote more heavily for AFD, for the far-right neo-Nazi party. Well, correct. Or at correct. least a very far-right party correct. than anywhere else. Correct. It's crazy. It, it, you, can't, you can't blame them. You're trying to understand them, why they are doing so. And I think with food or with bringing appreciation to the region through food, through, oh, we have that great region because there are like so many farmers which are doing amazing work and you can really make money with that. You know, you can really make a living. You can support your family. You can do all that. You can support the region because... People are moving out there and starting businesses. And that's what a farm is about. It's a business. And um, you can be proud of that. You, you have a belief in where you are coming from and in a, in a good way. And I think um, this has been taken completely away um, in the last 30 years um, since the, the wall came down. And I think with food, you have a possibility of um, creating a different environment and putting other people in place because they're seeing what kind of advantages you're going to have in that region. You, you, you have that huge market of uh, 3.4 million people of uh, Berlin in front of your door, and you are outside of the city, and um, there's an interest in, in locally sourced uh, ingredients, uh, Lebensmittel, how we call them in German, which means... Um, the stuff of life. The stuff of life. <laughs> yeah, the stuff of life. Yeah, and um, you, and and I think that's what we're trying to do. We we we're trying to put them center stage and um, giving the region and the people who live there some kind of um, reason to to do all that. Yeah, and 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 and, and this is probably in every region the same thing. Um, but here in Germany, with that country, with that rich, fucking rich country, with people spending in proportion uh, the lowest amount in what they're earning on food, with is that um, true? That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, fact. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fact. Oh, Germany. Maybe not. Maybe not the lowest, but uh, super low. Right. Super low. Okay, to be hundred percent correct. Right. 
Well, I'm a little bit more vague, but it gives you a, a certain, you know... It's basically people make a lot of money and they don't spend a lot of it on food. Correct. Yes. And um, and this needs to be changed. And if you have a possibility of changing and you uh, are able to give people who spend uh, money on food, you you can create something different and you make something... Uh, you, you, you maybe also leave something different you yeah. know like uh change mentality i think is important you have to give people reason why they should do that right and if it's good for our economy if it's good for our region because people experiencing all that you know you live on the countryside and uh, there are no more doctors there are no more no more small little farms there are only big huge farms and there are Uh, young people moving away, uh, only old people living there. There is a lack of connection uh, of land and uh, city, and, and and you know, and, and and when you see this on an on a wider scale, I think food is not the the whole answer on that, but it's it's it can be a part of it. Um, I notice you're 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 madly trying to get to that second bottle, and trying to figure out which. Which is doing you right. You already went through one. Is that a success? Yeah. All right. Well, let's say out the name and then we'll uh, we'll drink it in peace off microphone. This is a uh, Riesling by um, also good uh, friends of us. Peter Jakob Kuhn is the name of the winery from the Rheingau Valley. It's run by Peter and his son, Peter Bernhardt. Uh, in Germany, they have this thing with wineries to give always the same name to the to the kids. <laughs> They're afraid the the branding will be all fucked up yeah. if they name them like Anton or something. Yeah, that's and this is the Vineyard Schledon, which is an uh, the oldest parts in the Dosberg. Um, it's a small parcel of a couple of rows where they produce a Riesling, which is produced with skin contact. Yeah, uh, low sulfur, uh, long aging, and in, in, in wooden barrels. I mean, this is a dark. This might be the darkest riesling I may have ever. It's, it's Rheingau with ten years of age, so the the wines tend to get that kind of a little bit darker color. It's beautiful, but but on the but on the nose, it's um, super fresh, super acidic. Uh, right. It gives a nice, mm, nice citrusy flavor, and then when you have it in the mouth. Um, a good, um, you know, kind of bitter texture. And I have to get in a glass as well. Billy, cheers. Cheers. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Thanks again to Jade George, publisher of the Carton Magazine, for connecting me with Billy. I've been thinking about her and all my people in Beirut. I know the world is a busy and sometimes terrible place, but please keep talking about Beirut. Buy some of the Carton's wonderful magazines or prints. I've put a link in the show notes. Next Berlin episode is with the writer Jennifer Neal, an old friend and comrade of Roads and Kingdoms, in two weeks. The very next episode on this feed, though, is from the archives, as we continue re-releasing our previously paywalled episodes for the first time, for free, 
for everyone. I'll be in North London in Highgate with Hilary Whitney, one of the gin makers behind the excellent Sacred Gin. That will be out on Thursday, September 10th. We will meet you there.